There's a story that I was once told that has to do with the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, I've never been able to substantiate or corroborate this story, so I don't know if it's really true or not, but it was told to me as a true story. And that is that uh, during the assembly, as the standards were being written, much like our annual conference, as the story goes, they came to the article on God the Father, and the divines, the church fathers that were gathered there were having a great deal of difficulty in trying to come up with an appropriate uh, description of God the Father. And as they wrestled, as they debated, as they discussed, as they did their work, they were getting nowhere and ultimately decided they better just pause and pray and ask God for wisdom and for direction, which is exactly what they did, calling upon one of their esteemed members to lead them in prayer. He stood up and began to pray and sought the wisdom and direction of God and completed his prayer and sat down. It just so happened that one of the members that was present wrote down every word that uh, the man had said in his prayer, and as he had addressed God, he did it with such beauty and eloquence and precision that that became the basis of the article on uh, the father, uh, 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 on the fatherhood of God. So great things can be learned from people's prayers. Prayers can be very instructive. It was after Jesus had prayed that his disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, pray, our Father which art in heaven, and hallowed be thy name, and you know the rest. It's the Lord's prayer that he gave as instruction for us. Well, before us this morning, I'm going to be focusing on the prayer of Solomon. The prayer that he offered as this Ark of the Covenant was brought to the temple. Like so many other prayers, it can be very instructive for us. So our theme this morning is learning lessons from Solomon's prayer. Learning lessons from Solomon's prayer, the key verses are verses 22 and 23 of 1 Kings chapter 8. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven, and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The first lesson that I want us to learn from this prayer is that God is to be celebrated for his uniqueness. God is to be celebrated for his uniqueness. Our God is like no other God. It tells us in 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 22 and 23 that Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, now these words, there is no God like you. There is no God like you. That is repeated numerous times and in various ways.
throughout the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7.22 says, Therefore you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 11, And Asa cried to the Lord, his God, O Lord, there is none like you. God is unique. There is no God like our God. How unique is our God? Answer, search high and low, and you will not find a God like our God. For it says in verse 23, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. It's covering the entire expanse of the universe. Search high in the heavens, low to the lowest parts of the earth, and you will not find a God like our God. Even the false gods are nothing like our God. That is, mankind cannot even conceive, dream up, imagine, conjure a God that is even comparable to the true and living God. All one has to do is take a brief study of Greek mythology and you will realize that the Greek gods were sadly lacking in comparing to the true and living God. The gods of the pagan religions are nothing like our God. And the great religions of the world, their God is nothing like the true and living God. Buddha is not like God. Allah is not like the true God. There are some that would believe that all faiths are the same. We all pray to the same God. And that just simply is not true. For all gods are not the same. Our God is a living God. Our God is a true God. And our God is a God like no other. We must be very, very careful as we think, as we conjure, as we contemplate who God is, that we never depart from the scriptures. For we will never imagine the truth concerning our God. He is unique. The second lesson that we learn from this prayer of Solomon is that God is unique in his faithfulness. We might ask, wherein is the uniqueness of God to be found? Why is there God, no other God like him? One of the answers is that God is unique in his faithfulness. If you look at verse 23, it says, and uh, said, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath. And now here is the description of God's faithfulness. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. God's uniqueness is not limited to his faithfulness by any means. Our call to worship in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 6, read, There is none like you, O Lord, who are great, and your name is great in might. They are, there are numerous ways that we could describe the uniqueness of God, for actually in virtually all of his attributes, there is no God like our God. But our passage focuses our attention on the uniqueness of his faithfulness. 
There is no God like our God in faithfulness. God's faithfulness is first stated in a generic sense in verse 23 when it states that he keeps covenant and shows steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And then it states it more pointedly. For God is not only faithful in a general sense to his covenant, which is his ultimate promises to the people of Israel and their response to his promises, but more precisely, God is faithful in the promises that are revealed to David. God was true to his word. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 24, it says, you have kept, you have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. He was faithful to his word. What God said, God did. For we find that what God said he would do, he in fact did in verse 24. You have kept with your servant, my father David, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, there's the declaration, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. So all that God declared, he actually accomplished and did. Again, it is all about God and faithfulness to his word. God does what he says he will do. And now it gets even more pointed. For not only was God faithful to everything that he had promised to David, now we narrow in on very specific promises that God had made to David. And that had to deal with David's son Solomon and the building of the temple. Starting at verse 15, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, but the Lord had said to David, my father, there is his word, the Lord had said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you will not build the house, but your son, who I will set, uh, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now here's the declaration of God's faithfulness, verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. As Solomon stood before the people at this great moment when this ark is being brought up into this new temple that has just been built, the declaration is, now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he has made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord. All that God promised has come to pass. All that God promised has come to pass. God is faithful 
and his faithfulness is seen in keeping his promises to dwell among his people. There is a wonderful consideration that God will be in the midst of his people. If you look at verse 12, then Solomon said, the Lord has said, back to his promises, back to his word, it keeps referring to God's word. The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Now this dwelling in thick darkness has two connotations. First, that God would manifest his presence. That God would actually have a visible representation of the reality that he was with his people. Even as in times past, when his Shekinah glory would be seen uh, in leading the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness in a cloudy pillar by day, a fiery pillar by night, so too now God's presence is going to be manifested in this thick darkness. The second connotation is that however, his manifestation is still going to be with a measure of obscurity. For they will not see or know God absolutely clearly, definitively. But they are going to be reassured of his presence, and with his presence, his watchful oversight and care. Now there's a marveling in the thought that God would dwell with his people in verse 27. For it says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Is that something that is actually going to take place? That, that God is going to take up residency? For in times past, he moved with his people, but, but now there's this temple, now there's this lodging, now there's this dwelling, and there's going to be a, a permanent manifestation of God's presence. He will always be there. He will always be there. God will take up residency in the temple, if you will, verse, verse 13. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. And again, the idea is that God is not going to be at different places at different times, but God will always be at the temple. You want to meet God, go to the temple. You want to see God, go to the temple. The temple is the place where God will meet his people. But Solomon is very quick with a, a caveat that's very important to us. For his understanding of God was not a cultic understanding. This is not a corrupted understanding of an omnipresent God in the Old Testament. This idea that, that God would dwell just in the temple... Well, the natural question is, isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere? What do you mean God is dwelling in the temple? Well, Solomon makes it very, very clear that God's presence is not limited to the temple. There's a recognition that God is too immense to be confined to the temple. Look at verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Now these words, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The entire heavens above cannot contain the personhood of God. So how much less this house 
that I have built. Now we still understand the omnipresence of God, his universality of God. Rather, repeatedly, Solomon refers to the ultimate manifestation of God's presence as being in heaven as opposed to being in the temple. Now, notice these recurring words, starting at verse 29. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place and listen, now these words, in heaven, your dwelling place. In heaven, your dwelling place. Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they have again turned to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then verse 34, then here in heaven, here in heaven, again, this allusion to the fact that, that God is in heaven. Verse 36, then here in heaven. Verse 39, then here in heaven. So there's this ongoing theme that God is in heaven. However, God's temple was to be the place where they were to come to meet with God. There is a recognition at the outset that God's people would be sinful and in need of forgiveness. That God's people would be sinful and in need of forgiveness. For earlier it said that God would be faithful uh, to his people who were steadfast in their service to him. The problem is that the people aren't going to be steadfast. The people aren't going to be steadfast. So what does that mean for God's promise? What does that mean for their hope? What does that mean for their confidence, their relationship with God? Well, as I said, there's a recognition at the outset that God's people will be sinful and in need of forgiveness. For God's people are unlike God. There is no one like God. God alone is faithful. Not only is there no God like God. There is certainly no person like God. None of us are faithful. None of us are keepers and doers of our words and our commitments, and especially in our words and our commitments to God our Father. Notice verse 33. When your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Notice there is just this anticipation. This is a statement about the future. 
This is a statement of the reality. It's not if, it's when. There is an acknowledgement that Israel is going to sin. When your people, Israel, are destroyed before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned. Verse 46, if they sin against you, and then this statement, for there is no one who does not sin. There is no one who does not sin. Now we know that from the New Testament. We know that, that verse that says that <clears throat> for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <clears throat> but here it is, right at the dedication of the temple. There is no one who has not sinned. They're coming to the temple to pray, or at least praying in the direction of the temple, was symbolic of their obedience and repentance to God. <clears throat> this was their coming to God in a very literal, graphic sense. They were to repent. They were to come to God. Their obedience was demonstrated in their adherence to the instruction. They were to do what God said, and that was to come to the temple to receive his forgiveness. Look at verse 33. When your people in Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you, there's the repentance, and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. In this house. They were to go to the house as a demonstration of their repentance. That they were going to follow the commands of God. But the house itself was not magical. The house itself wasn't what is going to bring about the answer to prayer. It was symbolic. So, in reality, if you couldn't go to the house, you didn't have to. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Now notice this statement. If they prayed towards this place. If they pray towards it. So you don't even need to go to the temple, but you find yourself in sin. You, you find yourself in need of forgiveness. Then look in the direction of the temple as a sign of contriteness, as a sign of seeking forgiveness, as a sign of submission to what the Word of God has to say. Verse 48. And I know I'm skipping a lot of verses because I just want to give you the, the highlights. In verse 48, it's looking at a, a situation when they're in exile. Which, of course, they're going to be in exile. They're, they're going to be carried away to Babylon. And it says in verse 48, If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive and prayed toward, to you toward this land, which you give to their fathers. Now, what I want you to see is that simple little statement. When you are in the land of your enemies who carried them away and you pray towards their land. They are so far away from the temple 
They don't even know where the temple is in direction to where they are. Just pray towards the land. That's good enough. It's not about the very presence of the temple. It's about this instruction of coming to God and repentance and pleading with God for the forgiveness of sins. For God is in heaven and God is not out of earshot. God hears. Look at verse 28. You have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, and your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant, of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven. It's listen, it's listen, it's listen, and listen. You're in heaven. We're down here. You are faithful. We are unfaithful. You have kept the covenant. We have broken the covenant of faithfulness to God. But God is a God who's faithful to forgive. God is a God who's faithful to forgive. Notice verse 30. And listen to the place of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Forgive. When your people come back to you, when your people repent, when your people seek your forgiveness, Though they have been sold into bondage, though the, the rain has been held back, though they have been tremendously sinful and consequences of sin have been realized, when they come back to you, listen. Listen. And that listening is equated with forgive. Forgive. For the God is unique in faithfully forgiving his unfaithful people. God is unique in faithfully forgiving an unfaithful people. The God who hears is a God who forgives his sinful people. Look with me at verse, we already looked at verse 30, where it says, hear and forgive. Now we are at verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Now, it's clear to understand the reason that they were defeated. Because they have sinned against you. And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this place, this turning and pleading in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive. Forgive, verse 34. 
the sin of your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you have given to their fathers. Verse 36, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Verse 39, and here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. Verse 50, and forgive your people who have sinned. It's forgive, 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 forgive. For God had promised to be faithful to his people who were faithful to him. And God indeed would be faithful. But his people would not in anticipation and in realization that they would not be keeping the covenant and they would not be faithful. At the very beginning, Solomon is pleading with God, forgive us, forgive us. For time and time and time again, we're going to be unfaithful to you. And we know that you don't actually live in this house. But this is the place where you have told us to come and meet with you. And in our repentance and in our obedience, though we have been sinful, we will come and we will pray and we will seek your forgiveness. And if we can't come and pray and seek your forgiveness, we'll, we'll look at the temple. We'll look in the direction and call out to God and ask for forgiveness. And if we can't even know the direction of the temple, We'll turn and at least pray towards this place, your land, and seek your forgiveness. What's the great takeaway? Well, the obvious first one is that God is faithful. God is faithful. And that is said so many times that I, I wonder if that just starts becoming like water off a duck's back. I mean, we, we just know that by, by, by rote, right? I mean, God is faithful. So let me say it to you in a little different way. God never needs our forgiveness. Let me say that again. God never needs our forgiveness. God never has to say, I'm sorry that I was unfaithful to you. I repent that I didn't keep my word and my promise. I come and I seek your forgiveness that I have failed you and denied you. No, our God is like no other. He keeps his word. He is faithful. And as a result, is to be worshipped, is to be served, is to be praised, is to be trusted, or to be comforted in knowing the faithfulness of our God. The second great takeaway is we who are his people, and described in the text as his servants, 
need to be constantly reminded of God's forgiveness because we are unfaithful. We're unfaithful. Every one of us this morning has been and is unfaithful to God. The question is, will we acknowledge it? The question is, will we be willing to take that mantle upon our shoulders? Are we this morning willing to say, God, I have been unfaithful to you. I need to repent. I need to change. Well, if we are convicted this morning and we come to a realization that we need to be forgiven, what do we need to do? Come to him. Come to him. Come to him. It's not a place. It's not a land that we need to look to. But we need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one to whom we come for the forgiveness sins. The one who came to dwell among us. The one who came to manifest his presence. The one who came to reveal the glory of God. The one who came to show us of God's love and his willingness to dwell among us and ultimately will in the final day return to this earth and put, establish a permanent dwelling in which we actually see the very presence of God and know him completely. But now is the time to come to Jesus and seek his forgiveness. God will faithfully forgive an unfaithful people if we but come to him. So let me make two applications this morning. First, if there is anyone here who has never placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we have this wonderful promise of the Word of God that all who come unto me, I will never cast out. If you come to God in prayer, believing that your sins can only be forgiven, through the shed blood, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know that you have sinned, and the scripture says, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. And this morning, I don't need to prove that to you. If you will just stop and think, you know that you have told lies. You know you have not loved God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. You know that. I plead with you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. You come to him through prayer. Asking for that forgiveness. 
placing your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And this morning, if you do know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would encourage us to repeatedly come to Jesus. And as we come, and as we renew our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a part of what repentance is, acknowledging our sin and then seeking to depart from it, and we should be sincere, and we should be dedicated, and we should work to that effort, let me tell you, with tears, that we won't be faithful. We will be back in the future seeking forgiveness for the very same thing. Because there's no one like our God. It is not in us to be faithful. There is no one without sin. Whether it be before we come to Christ or after we come to Christ. The answer is, will we come habitually? Will we come regularly? Will we come with renewed desire for intimacy with God? Once we know Christ is our Savior, we're not coming in order that we would have eternal life. His promise is, his promise is a God who is faithful. That to know him is to know life eternal. All who put their faith and trust in him will be saved. God is faithful even to the unfaithful. But 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin still creates a barrier between ourselves and God. Not a complete separation, but an estrangement. Sin causes our hearts to grow cold. Sin causes our worship of God to become flat. It becomes words. We say, may God be praised, but we don't really praise and thank God for what he's done for us. We attribute it to ourselves. We attribute it to our goodness. We don't really stand and say, as Solomon did that day, God, you enabled us to do this. Deep down in our hearts, when we pray and ask God to bless us for our food, all too often there is a, a sense that, but I worked hard and I supplied this. Sin creates estrangement from God. Sin leads to even greater sin, greater rebellion, which is why the passage talks about the rain being held back and why ultimately being carried away into exile. Unrepentant sin leads down a miserable path. Unrepentant sin leads us farther and farther and farther away from God. So what do we do as we are way down this path? And perhaps someone who for years 
has been living out of fellowship with God and deep down inside they know it. And they're, they're down a path and, and wonder, can I ever be forgiven? And how do I get back? The answer is come to him. Come to him. Think of that temple. Think of traveling. If you can't travel, think of looking in a direction. And if you can't look in the direction, just think of looking towards the land. No matter where you are, no matter how far you have wandered, no matter how great the chasm between you and God, you can come to him in prayer. Seek the Lord's forgiveness and his renewal and his restoration. Because God is never out of earshot. He's in heaven. But he listens to our prayers. And he promises to forgive. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask this morning, first of all, if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would come to you. <laughs> that they would ask in this very moment for you to forgive them of their sins and to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who know that there's a barrier, who, who are very cognizant of sin that they have committed repeatedly. Lord, help them, help us to come to you and to know that you are a God who hears, you are a God who forgives, you are a God who restores, you are a God who brings us back from the largest, longest distances have fellowship with you. We thank you, O oh God, that we can come to the Lord Jesus in prayer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.